We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, listeners. You're tuned into That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show that brings independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths, and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station, so head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people. We're recording here on Lucharita, but as we are a podcast, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, our listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here in the studio and at home, I pay my respects to elders past and present. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm very excited today to be joined by my co-host Hannah McCleary, because we haven't done an episode together potentially ever, I think. So Hannah was on the Twix team when I started, but then took a break and Since then, I've become the weekly host, so it's our first time doing one together, which is very exciting. And today, we are joined by Marley Wells, a winner of the 2023 Inspiring Women in STEM Fellowship and a PhD candidate. So I'll pass on over to Hannah now to introduce our guest a little bit more. Thanks, Ollie. And yeah, I'm super excited to be back and really excited to um, be doing this episode with you. Um, As you said, Marley is a PhD student in the field of neuroscience after completing her Bachelor of Psychological Science uh, with honours in 2021. Marley grew up on the Tasman Peninsula, which is a rural part of southern Tasmania, and she has had to overcome barriers as a young woman interested in STEM growing up. So Marley, it's great to have you here. Um, First of all, what was it like growing up in a rural part of Tasmania? Hi guys, thanks so much for having me. I'm honoured to be here. Um, Yeah, so I guess um, it was pretty amazing to be honest with you. Um, I don't really like to focus on the negative side of, I guess, living uh, a lot further away from a big city um, because it was really, really positive. Um, now I moved here when I was about eight, um, from Queensland. I was, I was born up there and my, my dad's from Tassie. So we, we all moved down here. It's just, um, me, my mum and dad and my family. Um, yeah, so we, um, moved to the Tasman Peninsula, uh, White Beach more specifically, which is a lovely part, um, of, uh, Tasmania. And I went to school in New Bina, which is just like three minutes away, um, from where I live. So, um, in a little school called Tasman District School, um, about 200 kids in that school. So, yeah, very small. Yeah, that's not big at all. And shout out to White Beach because my field work is just opposite that, which we had a chat about when we first met, I think. <laughs> you did. It's a, it's a very beautiful uh, part of the world and I'm definitely lucky to do your research down there. So it's, it's fascinating. Um, definitely. definitely. And how, was, how were the science classes in a school that only had 200 students? Yeah, look, um, the positive of it is it's a lot of one-on-one learning, I guess. Um, but then the negative of it is we we didn't have much funding. You know, we're having two, three microscopes per class that we all have to crowd around and look at and, you know, a couple of Bunsen burners and that kind of thing. Um, but in saying that, all my teachers really engaging, love what they do. So um, in that regard, definitely lucky. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's it's definitely hard to get into, I guess, compared to the people who live in the city and have access to a lot more things than probably what we had. So, would you say that access was the main barrier? Were there any social barriers? Um, 
for me in particular, I guess being a, a, a young girl, a, a woman, um, it's not really something that's encouraged that much. Um, so combined with that for me, being in a rural area, I'll just talk to that a little bit more as well. Um, university is not something that's greatly encouraged. Um, so let alone uh, being a woman in science, um, going to university, moving to Hobart. So there's a, there's a few things stacked against you, I guess. Um, so yeah, definitely social barriers in, in that regard for sure. And then how did you end up in psychology? Was that, how, how do you make the jump from crowding around a Bunsen burner to ending up in psych? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, I always liked the idea of psychology and honestly for a long time I thought, yeah, I'm going to be a psychologist. And I, and I think now looking back, that's probably to do with social pressures around, okay, if you're a woman, you should probably go into the caring side of psychology, um, get rid of that interest in science, push that away, um, go on, do counselling, do psychology, which of course all fantastic careers, um, but it kind of felt like a lot of the time at university, I'm doing, I'm really enjoying statistics and I'm really enjoying neuroscience and biology, um, but then in the back of my head, I'm like, no, but you're going to be a psychologist. Like, what what are you doing? Um, so I guess somewhere along the way through that pathway, I discovered neuroscience. Um, yeah. Awesome. Um, so Marley and I actually attended the same college, so um, the same school for year 11 and 12. Um, what was it like making the move, I guess, you know, the transition from high school to college just in general, but also, you know, having to travel and did you move and, you know, coming to a school that you didn't know many people? I know that, you know, I went there and a lot of my friends went there because I went to a big high school. What was that like? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, so me and, yeah, like you said, we went to college together and at Elizabeth College, shout out, great school. Um, so the pathway, I'll, I'll talk to that a little bit more. Um, so in at Tasman, where I went to school, uh, education at, at that time only went uh, to grade 10. So um, for year 11 and 12, the expectation is if you want to go on and do it is uh, move to Hobart, travel on a bus, live in a hostel, move out with family, um, that kind of thing. So um, what I did, I did a little bit of a half and half. I moved out with family and I also um, travelled home almost uh, every week. I, yeah, definitely every week. Um, and so what that looked like would be getting up in the morning, about five in the morning, jumping on a bus for two hours, um, getting to Hobart, uh, getting getting to school. Um, and then if I was to do it in the same day, that would mean getting on the bus about four o'clock in the afternoon and then getting home at six. So a lot of people do that every single day and that's a 12-hour day plus school. So pretty full on. Um, so I guess that's that's a main point of difference. And also I think three of my mates from my small class went to Elizabeth College. A lot of the people go to Rosney College or Hobart College. So it is a lot smaller. So, you know, like you said, for people who go to bigger schools, you've got that social support, whereas it was just, you know, a, a small handful of us that were going to Elizabeth College that we knew. So that combined with that is yeah I guess a, a lot of social things all on top of one another. Were the options in your year 11 and year 12 um, years made clear to you? Did you have open days for those sort of colleges? How do you decide between them? Yeah so um, for Elizabeth College in particular um, that was something we sort of had to organise ourselves along with um, our pathway planner who was really really great going through school. Um, so you'd you'd jump on a regular bus or, you know, be lucky enough to maybe have a teacher or a parent who would 
drive you up to that particular open day. For for Rosney College, that would be organised so you could go in because um, it was sort of like a feeder school to Rosney because that's kind of closer. Um, and then, yeah, you'd just uh, all go together, choose your particular classes you wanted to do and um, then from there, when you're actually making your choice, um, decide on what you wanted to do. But, yeah, I, I chose pretty heavily um, science directed stuff like I knew straight away I wanted to do psychology so I did that and then biology and you know your basic English and maths that kind of thing because I wanted to go to university but yeah um, it's totally up to you I guess when you get to that point. So it sounds like you were pretty motivated from the start that you know you wanted to study science and you wanted to pursue higher education is that right like there was no stopping you like you were definitely going to do it or did you ever think oh it might be easier to just take another route in life? 100% um, I I, a lot of times along the way, I doubted myself and I thought, why don't you just give up and, and do something else, find something else you're interested in. Um, the really good thing with, with my parents in particular, big shout out to them, um, they're, they're so supportive of me. So there was no pressure for me to go on and do college even, do anything like that, go to university. It was kind of just like, if that's what you want to do, we're going to support you and help you out and, and go from there. That's awesome. Uh, Stick with us for part two as we dive into Marley's experience at university and her current study focus. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're interviewing Marley Wells, a 2023 Inspiring Women in STEM Fellowship winner and Neuroscience PhD candidate. So Marley, uh, we said before that you completed your honours in 2021. So what was the focus of your honours thesis? Yeah, so my focus, and I knew when I um, decided to go in and do honours, um, at this point, I'd like to point out that I was still really keen on being a psychologist. I did not think at all that, oh, you know, I'm going to go in and pursue research. But I knew that uh, I wanted to do a neuroscience focused kind of topic. And then um, we had sort of have like a taste a day um, in psychology where um, honours supervisors come and and they suggest projects and that kind of thing. And I and I um, fell into a project with um, Dr. Rebecca St. George, who's my current PhD supervisor as well. Um, and she was sort of looking at uh, response inhibition, which is the ability to stop movement um, once it's already been initiated. And we wanted to look at uh, how that functioned uh, in the brain and also um, how quickly people were able to do this and whether this changed uh, over time with age. And what were the main outcomes of your honours? Yeah so what we found was um, that older adults were able to um, engage responsive inhibition behaviourally so with reaction time um, relatively similar to younger adults Um, so they were just as able to stop uh, quickly when they needed to uh, as younger adults but they sort of relied on this uh, proactive or um, top-down kind of uh, things that were uh, external cues to enable them to stop and um, so they were a little bit slower in that regard because they're taking in more information to enable them to stop quickly 
Um, and what we found was that their brain activity was also different. Um, I was particularly interested in looking at the prefrontal cortex, so that's what we measured. Um, and we used this pretty cool technique, um, which has got a very long name, um, called functional near-infrared spectroscopy, which you should look up. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Oh, 100%. Um, we call it FNIRS for short because that's a lot easier. Um, and that basically looks at um, uh, infrared light in the brain um, and can tell us uh, the structure and function of it a little bit more. Um, so we found that, yeah, they were having this like kind of overactivation when they were having to um, stop. And that basically what it, our findings sort of showed that they were um, compensating for uh, these proactive measures that they were having to engage when they wanted to stop. Um, so in conclusion, I guess, is that um, if they've got this overactivation of activity, is there kind of other things that are suffering in the brain that um, they've got to uh, have a trade-off effect um, when they're engaging stopping? So in the real world, that might look like, okay, if I've got to stop quickly, I might um, have a heightened risk of falling um, if I'm an older adult. So, yeah, pretty, um, yeah, I guess, important stuff in, in that regard for implications for falls. And has your PhD research led on from there? Yeah, so it definitely has. So um, now we're looking at similar sorts of things, but in people with cognitive impairment. So these these things are like dementia, Alzheimer's disease, um, that kind of thing. And so the cool thing with response inhibition, so stopping, which are, you can sort of use in, interchangeably, um, is that you can measure it in the upper body. So with just quick little reaction time tasks where someone responds uh, to arrows on a computer screen and you respond with your left or right hand. But the other cool thing is you can also measure it in the lower body. And how we do this is um, the same sort of thing, responding to left and right cues, um, but they respond with their legs. So you kind of look like you're um, doing those dance dance revolution games, um, <laughs> if anyone knows those. Um, and uh, yeah, it's quite funny. So um, we can measure people's brain activity while they're doing that and also look at how quickly they're able to step in response to cues. And are you using data that's already been collected or are you sort of devising these dance dance step things um, for people to come in and do? Yeah, so we have uh, people come in in the lab. I'm t getting all primary data. I'm collecting it this year. My confirmation's just coming up soon. So I'll be doing all my data collection after that. And um, yeah, it's just all fresh data from um, older adults, younger adults and people with a cognitive impairment or dementia. And are those methods ones that have been sort of tried and tested in psychology or is there a lot of new frontier ways of doing things that will be involved in your PhD? Yeah, so we're using um, pretty uh, well-known uh, kind of tasks to test re response inhibition, but I'm kind of looking at it across different levels of response inhibition. Like kind of, okay, if we add more complex complex information like um, change the position of the arrow on the computer screen does that um, affect it if we add distractions around the main cue does that affect people's ability to engage response inhibition which are all still uh, uh, set in stone kind of tasks but I'm comparing them across all those different uh, forms of response inhibition more cognitive higher level stuff uh, lower level just quick stopping so yeah it's it, it's I guess it's um that's quite a, no a novel approach is measuring all of those things in those different uh, cohorts or populations. I'm a zoologist, so I work with animals, so we sort of pick them at random out in the field. How do you select people to take part in your 
work? Yeah, so um, I'm very, very lucky because I work over in the uh, Wicking Centre, which is uh, the Dementia Research Centre over in Menzies. And um, with the Island Project uh, or Island Clinic, we have uh, people come in who have been referred on from their GP to uh, participate in the clinic where they get a full day of cognitive assessment. And then at the end of that, they can put their hand up to be... um, contacted for further research and that's where I come in and I, I go on and contact them and say do you want to be a part of my study yes or no and then they come over and participate and then for older adults we uh, sort of have a similar cohort that we can um, pull from a, a lot of uh, it's really really great a lot of older adults and um, people with cognitive impairment um, really want to put their hand up for studies because they tend to really um, be keen to uh, better their lives and other people's lives living with cognitive impairment or just as they get older they, they want to participate in research and then uh, with the younger adults we're pretty lucky there's lots of people who uh, in psychology want to participate in research and, and get amongst it as well so it's it's pretty good like in, in that regard definitely awesome so confirmation coming up that's the end of your first year right that's very exciting will you be collecting data across your whole phd or will you have you said before that you love statistics so presumably there's going to be some analysis coming up definitely so the idea is that um we sort of planned it out to have the entirety of my second year doing very heavy data collection and so what that kind of looks like is people come in for two two and a half hour sessions um participate in some of the tasks we do little cognitive assessments that kind of thing um and then um get all all our participants to come through do the same thing and then by the end of that then we start analyzing the data um we're we're also thinking about adding in um kind of a more of a longitudinal measure as well so we're going to follow up with some of these people um at the end of 12 months and just track their falls and see whether at the um, baseline when I've done all these tests, have they fall, have, have they had multiple or any falls in the past 12 months and then um, potentially get them to come and do the same task and then we've got this longitudinal measure as well. So that's something we're yeah, in the process of working on um, because the connection with response inhibition or stopping to, to falls is, is really key um, along with whether we can use response inhibition or stopping to better detect, monitor and manage dementia earlier. So um, it's kind of a twofold thing, this falls component and also the um, monitoring and managing um, approach. So, yeah, so like like I was saying, yeah, second year, very heavy on the data collection and then analysis straight after that. So um, full on, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Love to hear that you're looking forward to it. <laughs> and. Because dementia is such an important thing in society and it doesn't just happen here in Tasmania, it happens across the world, are you working in collaboration with other people in this field or how does it work in neuroscience if, because presumably dementia is being studied elsewhere? Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot of uh, different labs uh, around the world. We've got a couple in um, Sydney that my supervisors have connections with, um, over in Amsterdam as well, people looking at that. So uh, yeah, the Netherlands. Um, Yeah, so it's um, definitely a diverse group and we're very, very lucky here over at Wicking. It's it's a world-renowned kind of centre for dementia. The stuff that James Vickers and all the, the groups over there are doing is really, really great. So definitely a lot of room for collaboration and my supervisors are, are all really great um, as well. I think you've had uh, Associate Professor Jane Alty on the show. She's one of my supervisors. Um, but yeah, it's um, definitely open for collaboration because of how uh, prolific dementia is in society. 
That sounds amazing, Marley. I'm so excited to hear about, you know, how your PhD progresses and, and how you're going in the next few years. That's really, really exciting. Stick with us, listeners, for part three as we chat about what's next for Marley. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are joined by neuroscience PhD student Marley Wells. So Marley, um, I know this is probably a big question and, you know, a PhD takes up a lot of your time, but um, what are your plans for the next few years and once you've sort of completed your PhD, are you looking that far ahead even? <laughs> Look, big question, definitely. I think any PhD student, um, when they ask that, they're just like, I have no clue. Look, I do have a bit of a direction. Um, I, I guess with the Inspiring Women in STEM grant that I've just been awarded, which is really, I'm so lucky and proud to be awarded that. Um, I'm looking to doing, yeah, more science communication stuff. And, and with that grant where... Um, I, I plan to go out into district schools like the one I grew up in and uh, go and uh, chat with kids about going onto university, getting into science, do some activities with them. Um, so, yeah, really lucky in that regard for going to, uh, I guess, a district school. You have a lot of connections because everyone in district schools across Tassie know know each other uh, almost. So um, that'll be really, really fun. So I'll be um, doing that kind of thing with science communication and then over in terms of like PhD stuff, I, I really hope to continue working in Tassie. We've got a great lab set up and my supervisors are great and um, my collaborators. So I, I really, you know, want to stay here and continue the work that I'm doing into dementia and um, that kind of thing. But the doors are, are really open. So I, I'm happy with that. And a huge well done for being one of the inspiring Thank women you. in STEM. Let's hear a bit more about that. So what's the timeline looking for that? Yeah, so... Um, at the start of the year, I applied, got it, which was really, really great. Um, I've recently just done uh, the Science in the Pub, Science Communication um, Night, where we, we went up to Shambles, um, me and the other girls, uh, the other uh, people that have been awarded it, and we sort of spoke about our experiences because we're all from very different backgrounds. And um, so that was fantastic. And then um, now I'll, I'll be getting into contact with those schools that I was talking about before. So, um, you know, you're looking Tasman, of course, my, my school, and then um, maybe like Oatlands, Tribana. There's there's plenty that maybe no one's ever heard of. And I want to give them a big shout out because district schooling is great. So, um, yeah, we'll go out there. And um, so, yeah, just contacting the schools and organising times from here on out and organising what I'm going to talk to them about. But Uh, It's pretty similar to this sort of stuff, you know, just talking about my story. Oh, fabulous. And the only reason I'd actually heard of Oatlands before was I had a friend in Hobart who Mm -hmm. would commute there and back every day to teach. Yeah, she did a lot of driving each day. Um, But with science communication, is that something you've always been interested in or has it come out new because of inspiring women in STEM? I think it's just naturally progressed over time. Um, Through my undergrad, I loved sharing to people what I was doing and that and that kind of thing um, and just chatting to people with about it. and I think it just naturally progressed to you know suddenly I'm doing podcasts and um, having <laughs> nights where I'm talking to a, a whole group of people and um, but I think that at the crux of it um, you know talking to district schools and and sharing my experience and being a, a bit of a role model for those kids has always been something that I wanted to do because it's just I've got this story I may as well use it um, for a way to encourage other people to follow a similar path to me so I I think it progressed in that way for my own story. And those 
other students you mentioned before there were a few that came to Elizabeth College with you if you went to each different college are you still in touch with them have they also pursued STEM at all or gone else other routes yeah I I'm quite I'm in contact with yeah quite a few of them and um, they've all gone uh, uh, quite a lot of them that have gone on to year 11 and 12 have gone into the pathway of university whether they've taken a break at some point and and continued on I think um, i I don't know off the top of my head if anyone else is in science. Um, I think that came along with, you know, it, it was hard for girls to get into science. It was hard at growing up to get into science as well. Um, I think I can probably count on one hand in the entire time that I've been at Tasman and, um, you know, knowing the area and stuff, whether there'd be, you know, people that went on to university. It's, it's, it's just really not a pathway that's pushed. Um, but big shout out to everyone that's gone on and done that. But 100% as well, like big shout out to everyone who didn't do that and having great and successful careers or just doing whatever they want to do from Tasman, from district schools, because, you know, whatever pathway you follow, I think you, you've had the odds stacked against you. So um, whatever you've managed to do is, is really, really great. That is such a good point. I come from a school where we were pushed into university and for friends and my brother it was not the right direction at all it definitely um, is up to the individual but it's great to have the opportunity made available exactly right so we can choose what pathway we want to do rather than one being set in stone whether that's university whether that's working um, in a supermarket which is what my mum does so you know it, it does not matter what you want to do it just needs to be supported either way fabulous and to round off our episode today it's been wonderful talking with you Molly but to round it off if you could sum up all those words of wisdom that you've given us over the last half hour and you could give one piece of advice to rural students listening to this right now about pursuing higher education and achieving their dreams, what would you say? Big question. But I think that whatever you choose to do, just go at it 100%. Do it with your whole heart. Um, go for it. And if you don't succeed, try, try again, that old saying. So, um Pick yourself back up and, and you'll, you'll find something f- for yourself. It's, it's, it doesn't have to be set in stone. It doesn't have to be a PhD. It doesn't have to be anything. You can um, find it along the way. I think it's important to acknowledge that I've definitely changed what I was going to do. Um, and suddenly I'm here sitting and talking to you guys and um, I wouldn't change a thing. So um, work hard at it and um, continue doing what you love. Wonderful, brilliant words to end an episode on. And thank you, Marley, so much for coming in. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Over the next two weeks, we're actually going to be talking to the other two recipients of the Inspiring Women in STEM Fellowship this year. So make sure you tune back in to hear from them. If you love the show, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Tabs on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. My name is Ollie Dove and I'd like to thank my co-host Hannah McCleary for her work today and our expert guest Marley Wells for coming in and talking to us and being so open and honest about her journey and being a very inspirational guest for our listeners out there. So from us here, we hope you all have a wonderful week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. 
That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.